Wealth can be measured in many ways. As it grows, life can quickly become complex, creating the need for more focused planning. Welcome to We're Talking Money with OmniStar Financial Group. OmniStar has been helping clients achieve financial success for more than 20 years in a client-centric and stress-free environment. With a reputation built on a long track record of working with people who want to grow and protect their assets, OmniStar illuminates the blind spots and provides actionable strategies to help you achieve what's most important. This is where you can count on straightforward and unbiased advice from a team of professionals that are passionate about your success. Welcome, and thank you for joining us today on We're Talking Money Expert Series, where we interview experts to get no-nonsense information on the parts of our 10 elements of financial planning. For those of you who didn't tune in to last episode, those elements are risk management, investments, tax planning, estate planning, family planning, cash flow management, lifestyle, business, philanthropy, and inheritance. Hi, my name is Alex Nolan, and I'll be your host today as we sit down with Phil Clark again from our last episode to continue our discussion on life insurance. Today, we're going to dive into some of the more in-depth uses, some more complex planning situations, and some places where something a little bit more out of the ordinary might make more sense rather than on an individual level. Without any further wait, let's get started. Hey, Alex. uh, Good to be back. Looking forward to today's talk. Estate planning has used life insurance in uh, many forms through the years. Today, it's still used in similar ways, but as you can imagine, with a lot of tax changes, uh, tax law changes, some of the things that were more effective 10, 20, 30 years ago may not be as effective today, but there's a number of basics that I think are always in style as it relates to planning. Probably the most common is irrevocable life insurance trust. Everyone has some knowledge of a trust. At least they've heard the term trust. An irrevocable life trust is designed specifically to hold life insurance and to keep it outside the estate so that it does not have a negative effect as it relates to being valued as part of the estate. So it's a great tool but they are not always used the right way. So irrevocable life insurance trust, it's a complicated document, has great appeal if done properly. What I see more often is they are used in estate situations that really don't need an irrevocable life insurance trust. So they're expensive and very effective But a lot of clients that we've run into through the years that have become clients, we've removed life insurance trusts because it really wasn't a good fit for them. But certainly a tactic that could be considered or should be considered, that's not as big of a problem these days because we have such a large exclusion ratio today. It's almost $12 million per person. And when you think about that, the average wealth in America you know, with, with a couple, for example, that's almost $24 million. Most people aren't going to have a problem. But a small percentage of the population, it can still be effective for that part of their planning, for the estate tax issues. But for the average, uh, they could still use an irrevocable trust. They might be getting close to that threshold, and maybe they want to use it for equalization purposes. Maybe they want to use it for other ways to develop wealth 
within their estate, or I should say outside of their estate. So lots of uses for an irrevocable life trust, though estate tax cost probably shouldn't be the primary one today, at least not for the average household. So uh, hopefully that gets us started a little bit with some of the estate planning. As you know, Alex, there's a lot more to it than just an irrevocable life insurance trust, but probably the most popular. Yeah, Phil, and to piggyback off that, you know, something important for our listeners and for those of you who may not be aware, one of the biggest advantages of life insurance is the fact that the death benefit is paid out tax-free. So as Phil mentioned, with the estate tax exemption at, at $11.8 million per person, if you're under that, your death benefit's going to be paid to you tax-free, and it won't matter because your estate will not be over that amount to where you'd pay any estate tax. So the whole purpose of the islet is to remove that insurance from your estate. And by doing that, it would not get factored toward your $24 million exemption if you're married. The reason why that is useful is you won't pay taxes on it. The other side is that you have to pay an attorney to set up that trust. So if you're under that and if you're buying insurance and even with that death benefit, you're still going to be under that estate exemption. Why would you pay the extra money to put the insurance in a trust if it's just going to do the same thing regardless? I think that's something important to know is that if you're going to pay for something, make sure you're getting the benefit of it. Um, For those out there who are in that very wealthy category above that, it can make a lot of sense. Um, So by no means are we saying that an islet is not a beneficial addition to your uh, estate plan, but just make sure that you have the wealth to justify it. That being said, um, life insurance can be leveraged to increase the value of, you know, what you're going to be providing to your family members, those who are around you, and also can provide a lot of liquidity for those people who have a lot of land or they have a lot of physical assets. They might think of, you know, how beneficial that could be for their heirs. And it's great to receive land and property, but with land and property comes upkeep. Well, if we put some life insurance in place, we can cover some of the costs, provide liquidity to our descendants, and allow them to help cover costs with those assets they may be receiving as part of their inheritance. That being said, Phil, there are some other places where life insurance falls useful, uh, one of those being uh, business purposes. And you know, we can go back and forth on this a little bit, but I think this is one of the more common places that people will think about using life insurance outside of a personal level, you know, especially in buy-sell succession plans for business owners. As I go into that subject with you, Alex, you're right. I think they're probably the most common. I don't know if they're used. People know what buy-sell means and they hear succession. Those are pretty common terms. Do people plan for those things is a question that I think is most often answered no. Um, The other thing I would add to that is even if they go to the extent of getting a buy-sell agreement written, to your point a little while ago, they'll spend money with an attorney, they'll get it done, but they don't fund it. And so all of a sudden, they have a great plan, but great plans are worth nothing if not implemented. So writing it is one thing, but then putting all of the pieces together to make that plan complete and functional, that's a different conversation, and I think a lot of those things are missed. So you're exactly right. When we talk about business insurance, one of the most common things becomes that buy-sell 
there's so many other ways to use life insurance in business planning, but that is probably the most common. So we talk about this a lot with clients, cross-purchase plans, entity purchase plans, which one's better. It all depends on their situation. How is their business owned? How is it set up? Is there a number of partners? Is it publicly traded, privately held? Is it a C-corp or an S-corp? All of those questions matter. And you know, as a planner, that without that, it would be very difficult for someone to just guess at the right solution and be correct. Correct. And, and I, you know, when we start talking about buy-sell planning, you really have to know what's going on with the company and what the objectives are with that buy-sell plan. Um, the two main types are entity purchase and cross-purchase plans, and they're both trying to serve the same purpose, but um, there are definitely some differences in how funds move, the taxation of those funds, and frankly, the number of insurance policies needed to make those plans happen. Uh, if we start off with a cross-purchase plan, it's pretty simple. It's in the name. You cross-purchase policies on the owners. So every business owner is going to purchase a, a policy on each other owner in that business. Sounds simple enough until you realize that one of the owners is 37 and the other owner is 62 and the 37-year-old is having to pay triple to ensure the 62-year-old what the 62-year-old is having to pay the 37-year-old. And then you realize that one of them you know, may not be eligible for insurance or you have five business partners, so you have to buy five policies and so do the other four partners. And before you know it, there's a pile of paperwork just trying to get this agreement done. There are advantages to the cross-purchase plan. There's a step up in basis. You're, you're going to save some money in taxes there. But at some point, paying a little bit less in taxes might not be worth having to deal with 15 or 20 different insurance policies. At that point, we start talking about an entity purchase agreement. And Phil, if you want to talk through an entity purchase agreement, that would be great, but it can make things simpler. Well, particularly if you have a lot of partners, you know, if we had just for example, a company with four partners, you're talking about 12 policies all of a sudden. They've got to cover need based on their three partners. So the individuals now own three policies each. And so now we have a lot more maintenance in terms of accounting, who owns what, and it becomes a little bit complicated. Entity purchase, on the other hand, uh, where you have a number of owners, it's much easier to let the company buy insurance on each owner. So now you effectively have four policies in that four owner example. And if a death occurs, the death benefits paid into the company and the company uses that to take the shares from that deceased shareholder's estate. And now those are owned by the company and distributed based on ownership of the surviving partners. Much simpler, but there are some limitations there. Uh, taxes come into play here because there's not the same stepped-up basis that you get in your example using that cross-purchase. So, But it doesn't make it the best decision or it may not create the best outcome. Simplicity doesn't always make things better. Cross-purchase... I prefer that one because of the benefits of tax, et cetera. But I also like entity purchase for simplicity. And you have to measure which one really makes the most sense, which is why 
deeper planning is going to be required. So any company that goes at this with a, uh, you know, this attitude of, well, let's just get something in place. Anything's better than nothing may be true, but much better to do your homework on the front end, get the right kind of coverage, the right benefits, and have it owned the right way in order to get the outcome that you most desire. Agreed. And I think one thing to note before we move on a little bit here is just let's assume you are prudent enough to have a business uh, buy-sell agreement drafted up by an attorney. Let's say you take that a step further and you fund it at some point. And now let's move ahead five years and assume you're a successful business owner. Your business has gone up in value. One thing that can make the cross purchase a little bit tricky, as well as the entity purchase, is that you're going to need to continue to update those buy-sell agreements. That's one thing to be aware of. If you plan on having everyone or if all of your business partners plan on working another 15 years, you may be updating those policies every three years, every five years. It could be annual. It depends how quick your company is growing. So just keep that in mind with how many policies are going to have to get written over the life of that buy-sell agreement. Yeah, good point. And, you know, one other thing that I might add is most companies, they don't think about the long-range part of the buy-sell. So you're right, Alex, as that thing grows, as that business gets bigger, it's possible that the buy-sell arrangement will need adjustment. It's possible that more life insurance would be needed. But more than likely, if everyone's healthy, it's probably a lot cheaper to ensure that risk versus trying to save for it. So just something to think about, but I see that often in business relationships or in business planning. Uh, Businesses always seem to have this short-sighted point of view, and they think they can out-save or save at a fast enough rate to do the things that are much more efficient by using life insurance. There's absolutely no way to save quick enough Uh, to offset what an insurance policy could do for you when you compare cost to save it versus cost to pay a small premium. Correct. So let's transition to a little bit different uh, form of a use. And I know this is a topic you're well-versed in. Not so common anymore just due to the reduction in the number of uh, pensions out there, but let's talk about the pension maximization strategy. That's a great subject. It's still useful, Alex, but you're right. Uh, Over the last 10, 15 years, we've seen pensions not become extinct, but there is a lot fewer pension plans today than, say, 20, 25 years ago when it was almost a given. If you went to work at a large company, you were going to have a pension. Today, if you go to work for any size company, probably you're going to have a 401k or some kind of qualified plan, but you're probably not going to have a defined benefit plan. So if you happen to fall in that category of being a pension holder, then pension maximization still has huge benefit uh, for those who are insurable. Basically, you can think of it this way. When the pension holder reaches retirement. They have to make a decision. And that decision, Alex, is irrevocable. And the decision is they have to decide if they want the maximum benefit per month for the rest of their life or whatever payout period is offered. And it will generally be for their lifetime. Uh, They have to choose that or they have to choose a reduced benefit 
and perhaps some amount is going to be left to their spouse, or they can choose a even lower benefit, say 50% of what their benefit would be, and then 50% continues to their spouse should they prematurely pass away. The problem here is that most people say, well, that's my only, those are my only options, so I've got to take one of those. Well, basically, if you think about it, there's a life insurance in many ways going on inside of this pension. The insurance company, or rather the pension company, they're betting if you take that lower benefit that someone's going to pass away or both of you pass away and then they're off the hook. You're basically buying life insurance if you're taking a lower option and allowing some benefit to pass to your spouse. We think there's a better way to do it. We think that more control is created when you do something called pension maximization. And that is, let's say that we have a a pension holder, they retire, and they want to take their maximum benefit. And let's say that's $2,000 a month. And the other option would be to take $1,500 a month. And if they do that, their spouse would get a continuation benefit if the pension holder passed away. So automatically, the pension holder is going to take a $500 haircut. And then if they pass away, the spouse's remaining benefit could be even lower. The difference in those numbers could be enough to pay for a life insurance policy that would easily offset the loss of the pension. And so here's why that makes sense. So now that pension holder can take the maximum benefit, pay a premium for the life insurance, And if that pension holder dies, the life insurance pays to the spouse tax-free and creates income for the spouse that would be similar to, and in some cases, greater than what the pension would have paid. If the spouse passes away first, the pension holder is getting their maximum benefit for the rest of their life, and they can now cancel the insurance that was on their spouse uh, or that was on their life for the benefit of this pension being uh, a continuation of benefits, and they were in full control in that case. So if they passed away, their, their spouse is well cared for. If their spouse passes away first, they can keep getting their maximum benefit from the pension, cancel the life insurance, and they're in a much better financial position. So definitely still a good tool, not used as much these days, but there are still pensions out there. And so I think it's one that should be looked at that the caveat to this one, Alex, is they have to be insurable. And if their health is not so good, then pension maximization in this form, probably not going to be a good solution. Some great points there. And uh, if you listen to our last episode, we talked about, you know, work site and uh, employer provided life insurance and the need to have personal insurance prior to uh, when you go to retire, just due to unforeseen health circumstances, the massive increase in, uh, in health or life insurance costs. Um, and so those would all be factors you'd want to think about prior to, you know, planning on a, a pension maximization strategy as your, uh, your get out of jail free card, if you will, for retirement and maximizing your money. I agree with that. You said it best. That is another show or maybe two. Yeah. yeah. Um, so th- that'll be, uh, something to catch later on. Uh, as we begin to wrap up this episode, let's dive into charitable contribution maximization. 
with charities, there are some different factors at play. Phil, if you want to take a you know couple notes on that, maybe some um, some of the more common areas where uh, we can use life insurance to help maximize uh, people's philanthropic goals. Good place to end our uh, podcast, Alex. Charitable planning will never go out of style. That's been around forever, and I think it continues to be a huge part of uh, estate planning. So, a couple ways that you can use life insurance for that. Number one, you can gift. As you said, you could gift a policy. So all of a sudden you do an inventory of your assets and you find some old policies, you don't need them any longer. You can gift those to a charity and it comes at no cost in terms of tax to you. Here is a caveat. There is a three-year look back and if you give that policy to anyone within three years, you pass away, those life insurance benefits could be included in your estate. So that's just something to note, but a great strategy if you no longer need the policy. Another very common practice is folks with a lot of IRA money. That money is going to be taxed when they transfer it. Now, if they have children, the children can stretch those IRA benefits, and so that could be attractive uh, more so than using it for charity. But if that's not their situation and they say, look, I just I don't want this money to pass to someone and then be reduced by 40 or 50% because of tax, what they might consider is using required minimum distributions to pay for premiums of life insurance, perhaps owned in an irrevocable life trust, and all of those benefits would flow to a charity or multiple charities, uh, depending on their, their goals. So, Uh, That'd be an easy way to use assets that are going to be taxed at a much higher rate, uh, more than likely. And so if their rate is a bit lower, they could strategically take those dollars out of an IRA and use it towards their uh, charitable goals. Another way to use life insurance for charitable planning, you started to talk about this a little bit, and that is you could have the charity buy insurance on your life. You could make a gift every year, monetary gift to that charity with the understanding that they're going to use that money to purchase life insurance on you. So if you pass away, they are going to get a tax-free death benefit and you had the benefit of giving them the funds, so tax deductible to you as a charitable donation to pay for that policy and uh, helps them, helps you. That's a that's an easy way to do some charitable planning, but I would say that method does tend to give up some control because you cannot take that policy away from them if you decide all of a sudden you don't really like the charity. You can stop paying for it. You don't have control. They own it. You don't have the right to cancel it. You can't make changes on the policy. That's completely up to the charity. But those are just a few ways, Alex, and gosh, we could go two or three shows in terms of charitable planning with life insurance and actually maybe uh maybe we talk about that at some point maybe we do a few shows around charity and charitable planning with life insurance yeah that would be a great couple topics to dive deeper on this subject that being said though i think we did a pretty good wrap up of some of the more common advanced strategies if you will uh as many of you know and people surely find out real quick listening to this podcast is you can do a lot of things with many of the financial tools out there and so it really comes to down to how deep you want to dive into any one topic to find the bottom of what you can really use something for yep great points alex and i think you're right we covered a lot of good stuff today lots more to cover and 
for now, I'd say listeners are at least, after episode one and two, a little better educated. At least on life insurance. Uh, Next week, we'll be changing it up, starting to talk about disability insurance. Uh, This one's going to focus a little bit on uh, our medical professionals out there and how important it is to have that. Um, If you have any questions, we're always happy to help. And thanks for tuning in to the expert series of We're Talking Money. Thanks for joining us on We're Talking Money. Be sure to visit our website, www.omnistarfinancial.com, where you can learn more about how we provide value to our clients. Subscribe to the show and our newsletters and drop us a line with suggestions for upcoming shows. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes or simply tell a friend about the show. This podcast is a publication of Omnistar Financial Group. Any information provided has been prepared from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy is not guaranteed, does not represent all available data necessary for making business or investment decisions, and is for informational purposes only and does not represent or constitute any recommendations. All expressions of opinion reflect that of the authors and are subject to change. If this podcast contains any projections, forecasts, guarantees, and or predictions of any kind, you're required to ignore the same. Omnistar is not engaged in the practice of law or accounting, and any information in this podcast should not be construed legal or tax advice. Any distributions, use, or copying of this podcast, other than the intended recipients, is unauthorized.